Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value the podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. You could also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Keith, Bobby, and Lara for their recent contributions. I'm happy to announce that I'll be presenting yet again at this year's Intelligent Speech Conference. This event will be happening virtually on Saturday, April 24th, 2021, and it'll feature eight hours of talks and panels from over 40 educational podcasters and YouTubers. Some highlights for me include David Crowther of the History of England, Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World, and Rudyard Lynch of What If Alternate History Hub. Tickets are currently going for $30, and if you buy a ticket with the promo code WORDS, that's plural, W-O-R-D-S, a small percentage of your purchase goes back to this podcast. With that, let's get on to today's episode, part two in a series on the lost letters of the English alphabet. In the previous episode in this series, we learned that the Latin alphabet, which is the basis of the modern English alphabet used today, was introduced to the English-speaking Anglo-Saxons by Irish missionaries in the 8th century CE. However, we also learned that before the Latin alphabet was introduced to the Anglo-Saxons, English was written in a different alphabet, the runic alphabet. The runic alphabets were a set of related alphabets used by ancient Germanic-speaking peoples. Now, the reason why the Latin alphabet was adopted by English speakers to write English, even though they already had their own native alphabet, is because runes were simply not used to write extended works. Of our 200 or so surviving inscriptions of Anglo-Saxon runes, we mostly have single words or phrases, maybe a couple of sentences here and there. The Latin alphabet, on the contrary, had a long literary tradition by the time the Anglo-Saxons got their hands on it. Another contributing factor was, after the Anglo-Saxons were Christianized, the religious institution of monasteries became epicenters of learning and scholarship, and the language these Anglo-Saxons learned to read and write was Latin, even though their native language was English. Education in runes was never widespread, so as more and more Anglo-Saxons were educated in the Latin alphabet, its application to written English occurred as a natural byproduct. So that's the historical context in which today's discussion takes place. As these Anglo-Saxon scribes began writing English using the Latin alphabet, they encountered a problem. English contained sounds that were not found in Latin, such as the voiced th and the voiceless th sounds, both of which are represented by the digraph th in modern English. A digraph, by the way, is just two letters that are used to represent a single speech sound. Let's explore these th and th sounds more closely. The fact that th represents not one, but two sounds in English is not something that you may have consciously realized, but the pronunciation of th in there is not the same as that of the th in thing. The first is voiced, which means the vocal cords are engaged in the production of the sound, and the second is voiceless, which means the vocal cords are not engaged in the production of the sound. Vocal cords aside, th and th are otherwise mechanically identical. 
The position of the tongue is placed between the teeth, and air is pushed over the tongue and past the teeth in order to produce the sound. Phoneticians, who are linguists that study speech sounds, would call these sounds dental fricative consonants, with th being a voiced dental fricative and th being an unvoiced dental fricative. Even more specifically, we can call these interdental fricative sounds because the tongue is placed in between the teeth. But for our general purposes here, the term dental fricative will do. Dental fricatives are actually one of the rarest sounds in languages of the world, yet it's common in some of the most widely spoken languages in the world, including English, Spanish, and Arabic. So just to make sure we're all on the same page going forward, when I say voiced dental fricative, what I mean is the th sound. And when I say voiceless dental fricative, what I mean is the th sound. And both of these sounds are familiar to us in modern English as the sounds represented by th. Okay, so since this episode is about lost letters of the English alphabet, it may surprise you to learn that the first solution devised for writing the Old English dental fricative sounds using the Latin alphabet was the very digraph we use today, th. You see, ancient Greek had a similar sound to the Old English voiceless sound that was represented by the letter theta, which looks like a zero with a line through the center. Latin did not have this letter theta, so when Latin borrowed Greek loanwords containing the letter theta, it transliterated that letter as the digraph th. The reason why Latin used this particular combination of letters to write the sound represented by theta is because theta literally sounded like a breathier t. Tuh. This sound is not exactly like the dental fricative consonants represented by the English th, but it's close in that they're both dental sounds. Interestingly, in late antiquity, the sound of the Greek theta shifted from this breathier t sound to the voiceless dental fricative th, like the one we have in English. Anyway, drawing on this Latin precedent, the earliest Old English manuscripts from the 8th century used the digraph th to write the native English dental fricative sounds, just like we do today, even though the phonetic accuracy of this representation wasn't exactly right. Early Old English scribes also used the letter d to represent the dental fricative sound. th was a reasonable transliteration of the voiceless th sound because t itself is voiceless, but like modern English, Old English also had th, the voiced version of this sound. D, unlike T, represents a voiced dental consonant sound, which is likely why it was recruited alongside TH to represent the voiced dental fricatives in Old English. In the original manuscript of Cadman's Hymn, which itself is the oldest extant work of Old English poetry written in the Latin script, the scribe uses both th and d to represent the Old English dental fricatives. Tha, meaning then, is written with th, and modiathank, meaning mode, method, or intention, is written with a d. This actually serves as a good segue to introduce the first of our lost English letters, ed, because ed is just a modified version of d. 
Uppercase ETH looks just like an uppercase D, but with a short horizontal line drawn through the center of the letter's vertical stroke, and lowercase ETH looks like a lowercase D, but with that same short horizontal line drawn through the letter's vertical ascender. However, lowercase ETH's ascender is not straight, like lowercase D's, but curved, making it look more like a backward 6 than a lowercase D. Side note, in typography, an ascender is the part of a lowercase letter that rises above the median line, and a descender is the part of a lowercase letter that falls below the baseline. I should note that lowercase ETH's curvy letter shape wasn't a completely new innovation. It actually derives from a curvy Irish script known as insular script that was used between the 7th and 9th centuries. Talking about shapes without pictures is an inherent challenge in the format of podcasting, so when you get a chance, do a Google image search of the letter ETH, and that'll give you an idea of what the letter looked like. Interestingly, ETH had a different name in Old English. It was called THAT. I'm not sure why the name was changed, perhaps to avoid confusion with the grammatical word that, but regardless, the Oxford English Dictionary first attests the retroactively coined name ETH in the 19th century. Because ETH is a modified D, and D is a voiced consonant, you'd think that scribes used ETH to represent the voiced dental fricative, th. This was true, but only early on. Within a century of its appearance, the correlation between ETH and th had become sloppy, with scribes using it to represent both the voiced and voiceless dental fricative sounds. By extension, it was used interchangeably with the letter thorn, the second lost letter we'll look at today that was also used to represent the English dental fricatives. Unlike eth, thorn is not a modified Latin letter. It's a runic letter that was directly borrowed into the Anglo-Saxon version of the Latin alphabet. As discussed earlier in this episode, and in greater detail in the previous episode, the runic alphabets were a set of writing systems native to Germanic speakers. In Futhork, which was the runic alphabet used by the Anglo-Saxons before their adaptation of the Latin script, Thorn was the rune used to represent the voiceless dental fricative The original runic rendering of Thorn consisted of a straight vertical line with an equilateral triangle attached to the right side of the line, with the apex of that triangle aligned with the vertical line's midpoint. When Thorn was adapted in Old English, that rigid triangle developed a more curved shape. Runes were typically carved with chisels, while Latin letters were written with ink, making curvier shapes easier to render. To modern eyes, and probably to ancient eyes too, this evolution of a curvier thorn made it have a very similar appearance to uppercase P, but with the loop shifted down to the center of the vertical line. The lowercase letter thorn looks similar to this, except it had both an ascender that went above the median line and a descender that went below the baseline. Shortly after thorn was borrowed into the English alphabet, a variation of thorn with a short line through its ascender began to appear. This wasn't exactly a new way of writing the letter. It was actually a shorthand symbol for the word that. This is a bit ironic, since the original Old English name for the letter ETH was that. Again, I'm at a disadvantage here describing shapes using words rather than visuals for all of this, so if you can, 
I recommend hitting pause and doing a Google search of the letter thorn as well. Because thorn represented the voiceless dental fricative in the runic alphabet, this is how its Latinized adaptation was originally employed by the Anglo-Saxons. But like the correlation between ev and the voiced dental fricative sound, the correlation between thorn and the voiceless dental fricative sound also broke down rather quickly. This resulted in two different letters, both ev and thorn, that were being used for the same exact job. A reasonable question you might be asking is, if the earliest Old English scribes were using th to write the voiceless dental fricative, why didn't they just stick with that? It works perfectly well for us today, not only for the voiceless dental fricative, but also for its voiced counterpart. Well, recall that this precedent was inherited from Latin. Even though Latin didn't have the Greek letter theta or the sound represented by the letter theta in their language, they transliterated Greek loanwords containing this sound with the letters th. While Latin did indeed acquire a lot of Greek loanwords, the number of Greek loanwords in the overall Latin lexicon was ultimately small, and the number of those loanwords that contained the letter theta was even smaller. It's easy to see why, from a Latin speaker's point of view, the statistics of this don't really seem to warrant the invention of an entirely new letter. However, in English, the dental fricative sounds were both native and ubiquitous. A dental fricative sound is literally found in the most commonly used English word, the. Because of this ubiquity, the early Anglo-Saxon scribes thought it appropriate for this sound to have its own designated letter, or, as we've seen, letters. By the late Old English period, the usage of eth had begun to wane in favor of solely thorn, and by the Middle English period, eth had become largely extinct. Thorn hung around throughout the Middle English period and even into the early modern English period, but eventually it was superseded by the reintroduction of the TH digraph. So let's take a look at how and why this happened. In 1066, the Norman French conquered England, resulting in a French-speaking, French-writing ruling class. Old French didn't have the or th sounds, so when French scribes wrote English words that would ordinarily use the letter thorn, they transliterated these sounds using the old Latinate convention of th. This didn't push thorn out of usage among native English-speaking writers, but instead resulted in the coexistence of thorn alongside th for several centuries during the Middle English and Early Modern English periods. However, by the 4th century, th had overtaken thorn in popularity. Simultaneously, the shape of thorn had begun to change. It lost its ascender, making it look almost identical to the letter p. It also looked quite similar to the letter win, which is another lost letter of the English alphabet that we'll talk about in a future episode. In the mid to late 15th century, the printing press had come to England, and printing press keys were often imported to England from continental Europe. The makers of these printing presses spoke languages that lacked the letter thorn. This led to most English printers heavily relying on the TH digraph reestablished in the English alphabet by the French when printing words containing dental fricative sounds. You'd think that all of these combined factors would have resulted in an expedited death of thorn, but it actually hung around for a bit longer in a roundabout sort of way. To explain this, we need to backtrack a little bit. 
Recall that in Old English, scribes used the word thorn with a short line through its ascender as a shorthand way of writing the word that. Well, that may have been where later scribes got the idea to make more shorthand symbols for entire words using thorn. Beginning in Middle English, scribes began writing thorn with an E above the letter as a superscript to represent the word the. Thorn with a T above it meant that. Thorn with a U above it meant thou. This thorn as shorthand trend continued into the early modern English period, but with a twist. Beginning in the 14th century, some scribes had morphed the shape of thorn yet again so that the top of its loop opened up. Rather than looking like a P, it looked more like a Y. Again, this is hard to demonstrate over an audio podcast, but you can imagine that, right? You take a capital P, erase the top of the loop, and then stretch open the lines a little bit, and you get a capital Y, sort of. In order to avoid confusion between Thorn and the actual letter Y, these scribes who wrote Thorn in this way began marking the actual letter Y with a dot or a line above it. If we look at the first clause in the first line of the Gospel of John, in the beginning, as it's written in a 14th century manuscript, the is written with a thorn that looks like Y, and the word beginning, which is archaically spelled B-I-G-Y-N-Y-N-G, is written with a line above the first Y and a dot above the second to distinguish these letters from the preceding thorn. Okay, so this new letter shape of thorn was in use when the printing press came to England, and it led some English printers to sub in the letter Y for thorn. As discussed a few minutes ago, printing press keys representing the more traditional shape of thorn were rare, as most presses were imported to England from continental Europe, from countries whose alphabets lacked the letter thorn. Substituting Y for thorn was common in combination with superscripts that served as shorthand for full words. This, that, and the were often rendered as Y superscript S, Y superscript T, and Y superscript E, respectively. While the superscript convention was common, sometimes these words were literally written YS, YT, YE. This, that, and the. Weird, but true. If you were to get your hands on a first printing of the King James Bible, you'd find plenty of these shorthand words throughout the text. This usage of thorn turned Y, as shorthand for grammatical words, was ubiquitous during the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Words in which Y was substituted for the letter thorn were never meant to be pronounced with a Y sound, Yet, the one instance in which this odd convention has survived, we do indeed mispronounce it in this way. Believe it or not, the ye in the phrase ye old, as in ye old shop, is spelled with a vestigial letter thorn. Ye old was a deliberate orthographical anachronism revived by British business establishments during the mid-19th century as a way of sounding quaint and associating themselves with a bygone time. So, ye old shop is really the old shop, although the mispronunciation of the as ye has now become standardized. I should note that the now extinct definite pronoun ye, probably most familiar to us today through early modern English works like Shakespeare and the King James Bible, is not the same ye as the ye in ye old shop. 
The ye of Shakespeare and the King James Bible was a plural second-person pronoun that began to fade during the mid-17th century. So these are the stories of Thorn and Ed, letters once part of the English alphabet that have since died out. However, both Ed and Thorn have survived outside of the English alphabet, and I'd like to close out today's episode by looking at the places where these letters still exist. In the modern Icelandic alphabet, Thorn and Ed are alive and well. While Icelanders consider Thorn and Ed to be Sherislenskar Stafuv, or uniquely Icelandic letters, as we've learned in this episode, this isn't exactly true if we take into consideration a broad historical timeline. The modern Icelandic Ed and Thorn are ultimately derived from the Old English Ed and Thorn. Like Old English, and for that matter modern English, Icelandic is a Germanic language, and it too was originally written using a runic alphabet. However, unlike Old English, which is a West Germanic language, Icelandic is a North Germanic language, and the Latin alphabet wasn't introduced to Scandinavia until the 9th century. We can generally speak of the dialect continuum of North Germanic languages from this time period as Old Norse. After adopting the Latin alphabet, 9th century Old Norse speakers ran into the same problem regarding the dental fricative sounds as the Anglo-Saxons did. Rather than reinventing the wheel, they copied the Anglo-Saxon alphabet and incorporated Ed and Thorn into the Old Norse alphabet. For much of the time during which Ed and Thorn coexisted in Old English, they were used interchangeably and unsystematically. But in Old Norse manuscripts, we find much more consistency in the two letters' distinction. Thorn was used to represent the voiceless dental fricative th, and thus was usually used as the initial letter in words, while ed was used to represent the voiced dental fricative th, and was thus commonly used in other positions. This correlation between the voiceless th at the beginning of words and the voiceless th in other positions within words is a more complicated discussion concerning North Germanic phonetics, which is something we don't need to cover in this already too complicated discussion. By the early medieval period, usage of ev in Scandinavian Germanic languages, including Icelandic, declined. In the following centuries, usage of thorn in these languages followed suit. These declines resulted in more strictly Latinate ways of representing these Germanic sounds. However, during the 19th century, Icelandic orthography, or spelling conventions, was reformed by a notable Danish linguist named Rasmus Rask, and this reformation largely drew on the traditional orthography established by an Old Norse treatise written back in the 12th century. By the time this particular treatise had been written, the letter ed had already been dropped from Old Norse, with the voice dental fricative being written as dh or just d. So the resurrection of ed in the modern Icelandic alphabet harkens back to an even older period of the language. There's an island chain in the North Atlantic Ocean about halfway between Norway and Greenland called the Faroe Islands. The native language of the Faroe Islands is Faroese, a small but nonetheless living descendant of the medieval Old Norse dialect continuum. Although the earliest version of written Faroese appeared in the 14th century, between the 16th and the first half of the 19th centuries, Danish authorities who ruled over the Faroe Islands forbade Faroese from being written. While Faroese continued to be spoken, it remained unwritten for three centuries. 
In the mid-19th century, restrictions of written Faroese were lifted, and a new Faroese orthography was standardized, again drawing from Old Norse orthography as a starting point. Ed made the cut, while Thorn did not. What's fascinating about Faroese orthography is that its spelling is based on historical etymology and not on pronunciation. This results in a writing system where there's often not a one-to-one -one correlation between sounds and the letters that represent them in words. Linguists call this a deep orthography, or opaque orthography. The pronunciation of Faroese has drifted significantly from its closest linguistic relative, Icelandic, yet the vocabulary of these two languages are spelled very similarly. This means that an Icelander can parse out meaning from Faroese spelling, but not from actually listening to the spoken Faroese language. Fascinating stuff. Elfdalian is a minority language spoken in central Sweden by just 2,500 speakers. Another lesser-known modern descendant of Old Norse, Elfdalian didn't have its own alphabet until as late as 2005, and when that alphabet was finalized, our friend Ed was recruited to represent the voiced dental fricative sound. Last but not least, Ed, specifically lowercase Ed, lives on in the International Phonetic Alphabet. The International Phonetic Alphabet was devised in the late 19th century by the International Phonetic Society as an alphabet capable of representing all possible speech sounds in languages from all over the world using a system with a one-to-one -one correlation between the symbol and the speech sound. I've posted a link in the show notes to the official IPA website, which lays out its 100-plus symbols and lets you click on each one to hear its corresponding sound. Anyway, the IPA's letters are largely derived from the Latin and Greek alphabets, but the symbol for the voiced interdental fricative is ETH. And in case you're wondering, the IPA symbol for the voiceless dental fricative is theta, that Greek letter discussed at the beginning of this episode. All right, well, that's it for today, and I hope that wasn't too much information for you to digest. Regular listeners, you know the spiel by now. You can leave a rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast, and my email is wordsforgranted at gmail.com if you'd like to drop me a line. If you'd like to support the podcast with a small monthly donation, visit patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. All right, have a great day, and I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.